All right, if you got your Bibles, 1 Samuel 17. We're continuing this journey called or, just, just an ordinary day, ordinary life. And I don't know about you, but my life, my days over the last few weeks have been filled with a lot of ordinary days. Just things, you just wake up, keep going. Yesterday uh, was going, you know, it was a miserable looking day. I'm like, I want this to be a very ordinary day. I'm just going to stay in all day. Not just because of the rain, because of SantaCon as well. I am not a fan of SantaCon in the city. Natalie and I, our first trip, when she first came before we ever moved to New York, it happened to be on SantaCon weekend. And we were riding the, uh, the subway and all these people are dressed up. And I was like, oh, this is so cool. Now seven years in, I'm like, get these idiots off the streets, off the subways, and just let me live my normal day in the city. I was like, I just want an ordinary day. But we, we kind of come up with this mindset that, you know what? something extraordinary doesn't happen today, then, uh, then nothing's happened. And we've kind of taken this mentality and began to shift it in our lives and begin to understand that God actually uses the normal, mundane, everyday things of our life to begin to move us toward extraordinary things. Uh, there was a book that Madeline actually recommended, uh, Madeline plays on our keyboard, called The Liturgy of the Ordinary. And uh, Katie and I have been like stealing this back and forth from each other. I'll read a chapter and then all of a sudden it's gone from my side of the book stand and it's over, I mean, uh, nightstand, it's over on her side. But it is a beautiful book of ordinary things that happen in all of our lives that can help remind us of beautiful, extraordinary things of God. And I would encourage you, if you like to read, if, there, if this series has connected with you, it's a beautiful book. You can ask me, ask others about it, but uh, it's, it's just one of those things, even if I've been preparing for this series and reading this, it has really changed how I look at what it means to even get up, have a cup of coffee, shower, just go through the normal things of life and how all those things can be remembrances of what God is doing in our life. And we've been looking at these stories primarily out of the Old Testament of how this happened. We looked at Noah and this building project, this ark, that all of a sudden he woke up one day and God said, I got something for you to do. And how his unprecedented obedience impacted not only his life, but created salvation for those, for humankind to continue. And then Jared talked to us about Mary and Martha and this dinner party they had for Jesus and how his peace was understood in a new way like never before. Whether you were anxious or whether you were felt, you know, you were nobody, his peace flowed into their life. And then we looked at two other characters, Abraham and that story of sacrificing Isaac and how he experienced the unparalleled provision of, of God, not just providing a lamb, but a ram more than he needed. And then last week we looked at Moses and this burning bush experience and this unexpected purpose that God gave him to go and bring salvation for a nation that was enslaved. Somebody who felt unworthy, couldn't, he was hiding out, thought God was done with him and God pulled him right back in and made an impact. And this week, the story we're going to look at is about a man that is known as one of the greatest warriors of all time. He was a visionary. He's one of the greatest kings of all time. And he ushered in the golden age for the nation of Israel. And through him came the actual line of the Messiah. And of course, his name was David. But when we come across David, he was just a shepherd, just a measly, lowly shepherd that nobody would have probably thought would be this great King. And we're going to see how just a couple of ordinary days in his life changed his trajectory 
and really the trajectory of the nation of Israel and what it was going to accomplish for years and years to come. Now let me give you a little more background. It's been about a thousand years since the time of Abraham, the original covenant when God said to Abraham, I'm going to give you a, I'm going to make you a great nation. And they began to do that. It's been about 400 years since the time of Moses and the Exodus when Moses went back, we looked at last week and took the people of Israel out and headed to the promised land. Like finally, we're going to fulfill that 600 year old promise that God gave to Abraham. But they hit some roadblocks along the way, right? I mean, they spent 40 years wandering in the desert because they're disobedient in that. And then they finally get to this area and they begin to settle it. They break it into 12 sections based on the 12 tribes of Israel. They go through a time where there are some prophets who speak God's word to them. And then that, there's a time when judges come in and they're the spokesperson for God to the people. But eventually, because of their own stubbornness and their own desire to be like other nations, they ask God to give them a king. And God says, you do not know what you ask for. Like, if you really want a king, he's going to do this. He's going to take your money. He's going to send your guys, your young men to war. And he's going to take all your beautiful women for himself. Like, this is what he's going to do. They're like, sign us up. We'll do it. I mean, it was, he was like, I really don't want you to. But because of their stubbornness, he relented. And he gave them what they wanted. And he gave them a guy named Saul to be king. Saul was the prototypical king, one of the tallest men in the land, good-looking, powerful. Like when you thought king, like picture in the dictionary, encyclopedia, it was Saul. But Saul was not a good king. He actually led the nation of Israel into disobedience. And while Saul was king, it says that he lost the favor of God because of his repeated disobedience and pride. So here's what God does. Instead of abandoning them, abandoning Israel, he does what he always does. When, when the world was going in one direction, he brought the Noah and the ark and a flood in the way out. When they were enslaved in Egypt, he brought Moses as a redeemer to bring people out. So instead of just saying, you asked for a king, I'm going to let you just live by this guy, die by this guy. He says, I'm going to raise up another king, a man after my own heart. And this is where we meet David. So if you look at 1 Samuel 16, you begin to see the story of David being chosen as king. The story goes that Samuel was directed by God to go to the house of this guy named Jesse to, uh, to find a king among his sons. And so Jesse starts rolling out his sons with the oldest. And he brings out all seven of his known sons. He's like, boom, 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 boom. And Samuel's like, no, 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 all of them, no, no, no. And he's like, I thought God told me to come to Jesse's house. Like maybe it was somebody else's house, but do you have any other sons? And he's like, I do. I have one other one, this little scrawny kid out in the, I mean, we left him in charge of the sheep because we didn't think he would be, there's no way he's going to be the one chosen as king. And Samuel says, well, go get him. And he comes and he brings him before his youngest son. And 1 Samuel 16, 11 says this. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, which can also be translated the smallest. But behold, he's keeping the sheep. Now, David was just having an ordinary day, wasn't he? I mean, just an ordinary day. Maybe he was even having a bad day. I mean, think about it. All of his brothers get called to this special meeting, this clandestine meeting with the prophet of God, who they don't, they don't know what's going on, but something special is going on. The, the prophet showed up, it says he like showed up with his big fatted calf, ready to sacrifice. He's like, Jesse, I want to meet with you and your boys. Like, it was like something neat is going on, and David just left out in the field to take care of the chores. 
Like, this is why I absolutely hate yard work. Because I have an older brother who loves yard work because he got to use all the cool tools. Like, he would ride the ride lawnmower, the electric hedge trimmer. My job, pick up pine cones. My job, pick up the hedge trimmings. Like, it was no fun. I hated doing it because I got left with all the bad jobs, probably for good reason. Me and lawn equipment have not had a good history together. I almost saw this pinky off with an electric hedge trimmer one time. It's just not been a good uh, marriage between me and lawn equipment, so it's probably a good thing my dad saw that. But I just remember always having the leftover jobs. Maybe not getting invited to do the important things. And this is maybe how David felt. And maybe you felt like David at some point in your life. Undervalued, always underestimated, Maybe you feel like you get the leftovers, nothing of real value. And the beauty of this story we're going to see today is that God knows these feelings and he understands them. And they are actually incredibly valuable to him. Because learning to be patient, learning to be humble, learning to be dependent upon him is what actually trained David to become the greatest king in the nation of Israel. Because he had to learn a new perspective on life. For God does not look on the outside, but he develops the inside. 1 Samuel 16, 12 continues the story. It says this, And Jesse sent and brought him, talking about David. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. This small kid, this one that nobody thought anything about, became this amazing man. And he was in that moment called an anointed king. Now, you and I don't understand maybe the significance of this, but this prophet was the only one in the nation of Israel who could anoint a new king. It was, they didn't hold elections. They didn't, like every four years, say yay, nay. It was when the prophet of God said, you're out, you're in. And he had just come to David and said, you are going to be the next king of Israel. This guy, early to mid-teens, somewhere in that range, now, I know a lot of early to mid-teenage year guys. Now, if you tell them they're going to be king, like, they are going out and buying the armor tomorrow. Like, they are, they are ready to go. But what does David do here with his newfound calling? Well, he's going to be ushered into some secret training program where he'll start to make himself known. Or do we hit that movie montage where somebody like Morgan Freeman comes in and takes him and speaks wisdom to him and like in 48 seconds now he comes out a new man trained that can fight assassins and do all this kind of stuff? I mean, that's what you imagine the next chapter to be. You're anointed king. Now your training begins. He's going to make himself known, challenge the king, lead a rebellion, and set himself up as God's chosen ruler for the nation of Israel. No, what he actually does is this. He goes back to shepherding. He goes back. Then he gets called, actually, into the king's service. The king's having some bad days. And he's like, I need somebody to come play music and sing to me. And they were like, I know this dude. His name's David. Like, David at that point was not known for, like, his world-renowned strength. He was, like, a good musician and singer, and they're like, hey, come sing for the king. So David is now having to go basically minister to and work for the guy he's supposed to replace. Now, again, if it's my calling, I'm like, you know what? This is my chance. This is my, I'm going to start sabotaging him. I'm going to start laying the groundwork for him. This is, this is what's going to happen. David doesn't do any of that. He bides his time. He allows God to open the right doors at the right time. And then the nation of Israel goes to war. 
Right? So he's like, all right, finally, we're going to war. I will get to prove myself on the battlefield. But again, what happens? It says his brothers were all sent off to war, and David was left at home to tend to the sheep. Tend to the sheep. I just know me. At this point, I'd be like, God, I thought you said I was going to be king. <laughs> like, you got me singing to the other king. You got me watching these sheep. And when I could be on the battlefield showing my wares, showing who I can be, you got me doing nothing. I'm hidden here. And what God was doing was actually one of those Morgan Freeman moments. It wasn't my, he was teaching him humility, teaching him dependence upon himself. He had him in a training program. This isn't the life we would expect for the new king. He needs some other kind of training and development, right? He should be meeting with great warriors and leaders. But instead, God is developing his own training program, a program that will create an uncompromising perspective in David's mind when it comes to what it means to follow God. Replace eventually replace Saul with a man who is after God's own heart. You know what God was developing? He was developing a man who would be known as a man after God's own heart. David wasn't just born that way. He was trained that way by God himself. And this is good, to know, this is good news because there is a battle coming. There is a battle coming that only a humble servant of God can win one that God has been preparing David for. And so let's pick up the story in 1 Samuel 17. And I'm going to read verse 1 and then jump down to verse 4 and read a few verses. And you're probably familiar with this story, but maybe there'll be some pieces of it you haven't called before. It says, Now the Philistines, which were the enemies of Israel, gathered their armies for battle. Verse 4. And there came out of the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and seven spans, somewhere around seven to ten feet tall. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armored with a coat of mail, and the weight on his coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. He had a bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and the spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield bearer went before him. This dude is decked out. Decked out. Verse 8. He stood and shouted at the ranks of Israel. Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, or are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. And if he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we'll be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all of Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. I've been like crying party foul, right? not fair. Like, you've got this seven-foot dude, and, like, we're all about 5'8 over here, like, the average size of that time. Men were about 5'8, and they're like, this, this is not fair. Like, you've been hiding this trump card in the back, and now you bring it out, and there's no way we can do this. And they were overcome. Fear and dismay were all around them. Things were not going well for Saul and his armies. They were basically in a stalemate. The armies were similar sizes, they both had good fortified positions, but the Philistines had a giant, a man of great renown who had never lost a battle. And now he had come to fight the Israelites, to taunt them, to ask them to send out their best fighter for a one-on-one -on -one match, winner-take-all. Fear and dismay. It'd probably be what was on my mind as well. They were in a bad situation, no solution, no savior in their midst. What causes us to come to a situation like this? It causes us to embrace fear 
and dismay. I think it's exactly the same thing that happened here. They stopped listening to God and started looking at Goliath. Very simple thing. In this moment, when you read up to this moment, God had been delivering them over and over again. God had taken them into battle and they had won over and over again. They knew the stories of Joshua walking around the walls of Jericho and them collapsing. They remembered the stories of the Exodus and Moses pulling the people out. They had hundreds and hundreds of stories of God's faithfulness. But the immediacy of this giant named Goliath standing before them caused them to stop listening to God and start looking at Goliath. We do the same thing. How often do we forget God's promises as soon as we face a difficulty that seems overwhelming? Truth is, the promises of God are actually activated in our trials, in our difficulties. I don't need a promise of God if I walk into a land and there's no enemies there. The promise of God comes when difficulties come. That's when they're activated. Thankfully, a new perspective that was about to burst onto the scene, a perspective from someone who had been spending time developing deep trust in God and his word. Look at verse 20 now. It says, And David rose early in the morning. He left his sheep. He had still been shepherding. He left them with a keeper and took the provisions and went, and Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was kept, going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. And as he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. But this time, David heard them. This was the first time David had heard them. Verse 26 says this, And David said to the men who stood by, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach of Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? I love what David says. Like, everybody else is like, You see how tall that dude is? Like, you see how much armor he's got? You see that spearhead? It's bigger than like three of our heads together. Like, they're all talking and focusing on him. But David's like, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of God? What I want you to see, first of all, then what about this story is this. This is a story about perspective, not provision. This isn't God coming through in a moment like something and doing something crazy, bringing provision. This is about perspective. David had a whole different perspective of who Goliath was than Saul and his armies did. This is what you and I need to learn in these ordinary days when challenges come our way. This wasn't to him a giant to be feared. It was a man mocking God and claiming to be more powerful than the God they serve. David did not become dismayed and fearful. He became empowered and emboldened. Why David says here, what David says here helps us understand his perspective and gives us some questions to ask ourselves when we find ourselves lost in the wrong perspective of our lives. The first thing he says is, who is this? David didn't focus on the size of the man or the problem in front of him. He wasn't impressed or overwhelmed. It didn't mean that the giant wasn't there. It didn't mean that it wasn't an issue. It just meant that in comparison to the greatness and the grandeur of God, it was no problem. Incomparable. Not even a name. Who is this? And it makes me ask this question. What problem is clouding my focus on God? What problem am I facing? that I'm, I'm giving up more of a name, more importance than even the name of God. What problem is clouding my own focus on God? 
And then he calls them an uncircumcised Philistine. I'm not going to get into the details of circumcision, and I don't have slides for that this morning. Uh, but David knew one thing about this giant. He was not part of the covenant relationship with God. He was not a servant of God. Instead, he was mocking God. He wasn't part of the family of God. David knew he was, which makes me ask this question of myself. What kind of relationship do I actually have with God? When I hit a difficult, when this giant comes face to face, instead of having the wrong perspective, I have to ask myself, what kind of relationship do I have with God? Do you remember like David that you have a covenant relationship with God? You've been chosen. You're the beneficiary of his love, grace, and mercy. You are a child of the Most High. We often forget that we don't come to God as beggars. We are his sons and daughters that he will provide for and protect. Do we think that way? Or do we forget? Do we think we come as beggars, hoping that God would give us some crumbs from his table? And then he calls, he says, who would defy the living God? God David knew that God was alive and active. And it makes me so ask this question of myself. How has God revealed himself to me? How has God revealed himself to me? Where have I seen God work before? What is he building in my life? These stepping stones and building blocks that allow me to grow deeper and deeper in my relationship with him. And we're all going to face giants. We're all going to face overwhelming circumstances and consequences in our life. But here's the deal. There will come a time when you have to say, who is this? What is this? It's incomparable to the name of God, to the power and provision of God. And remember that we are part of this family, that he provides for us, he gives us. The key thought that we have to think is this. We have to stop begging for God's provision and start living with the right perspective. Doesn't mean that his provision isn't important. It just means we don't have to beg for it. We are the children. He gives it to us. This is not a story of God providing. It's a story of David having the right perspective to act on what God has already done over and over and over again. So David brought this new perspective to the camp. Fear and dismay were foreign thoughts to him. But he didn't just think of these things. He actually began to put them into action. Look at verse 31. It says, when the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul. They were basically like, this guy is crazy. You got to hear this. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight the Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go out against the Philistine to fight with him. You're but a youth, and he has been at war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear, I took the lamb from the, to take the lamb from the flock. I went after and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and the uncircumcised Philistine, you didn't even call him by his name, shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. I want you to see next, this story is a story about expectancy, not expectations. Nobody had any expectations of David, except that he would probably get squashed like a bug. He'd be a little dirt mound out there afterwards. But David approached his issue with a sense of expectancy. He didn't know how God was going to come through. He just knew that he would, and he wanted to be a part. This was not a test of David's willingness to fight. It wasn't that there, everyone else failed to step up and to show how serious they were about following God. God could have defeated the giant in the snap of the fingers. 
Instead, what this was was a display of God's willingness to use David. To use David. To allow him to be a part of the great story that God was sharing with the world. This isn't a story about David telling God how to deal with the problem either. Like, God, let me show you how to take care of this. If you'll just do this, 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 and this. It's not what it was. But I think we can sometimes get this way where we start either expecting that we're either going to always fail or we start expecting that God has to act in a certain way. And here's some questions I think that he brings to mind here that we have to ask ourselves. First is ask this, where is my heart failing because I feel overwhelmed? He says, let no man heart, let no man's heart fail. Where is my heart actually failing because I'm starting to feel overwhelmed? Where have you lost hope? Where do you think the battle has gotten too big for you to handle? This is actually the starting point of hope and help. Then ask this question. Where has God overcome obstacles in my past? David, David immediately said, look, I've fought the lions and the bears. Like, I, I've defeated them. I've actually grabbed a lion by its beard and, like, knocked it out. When I was in Kenya a few years ago, we were in a small tribal village, and we were meeting there and eating dinner there. And the way that they gathered food was they would go hunt. They literally go hunt, like, uh, you know, gazelles and things like that but occasionally a lion would wander into their camp and they had to like hunt this lion and I was like well how do you guys do that and they had this stick I actually brought one back for PJ uh, as a but it's like a, just a big club with a big knot on the end and they would circle the lion and then this is what would happen the lion they said this is the guy telling me this the lion would look and he would find the weakest one among us the one that looked the most scared and he would charge at him <laughs> Please don't let that be me. Like, put on a good face, right? He said, but the most important job was this. Whoever was directly behind the lion at that point, it was their job to start chasing after the lion as soon as he made a break for the weak and the timid one. And the guy would grab him by his mane, which was the one place that the lion could not catch and eat him, and he would hit him with a thing in the head, and you hit him in the right spot, and it would drop him immediately. And I said, what happened if the guy didn't catch the lion? He was like, oh, the other guy would be eaten. <laughs> he was like, yeah, you know, Bob's gone now. And now we got to find a place for Bob's wife to live. But he was like, more often than not, they would catch him in one stroke, one stroke they would knock him out. And this is what, literally what David was doing, but by himself. And he knew God had given him the courage, the ability to do this. God had protected him in the past. Whatever giant is hitting you right now, whatever overwhelming situation, there are things in your past that have been smaller victories that are helping you understand how to walk into this victory as well. And the other question is this. Where do you need to have faith in God's deliverance? Where do I need to have faith in God's deliverance? When he said, look, he did it then, and he'll do it again. David said, look, he delivered me then, and he will do it again. Where do you need to have faith in God's deliverance? The key idea is this. Stop expecting the worst and start living with an expect expectancy of what God will do for you. Stop believing the worst. He'll kill us. I'm overcome. And start living out of expectancy. The last thing we'll look at real quick is the actual story. The, the, David goes out. I'm not going to read it here. David goes out and they start having this back and forth verbal contest. And Goliath basically says... You know, do you mock me, treat me like a dog, sending a stick out here to fight me? 
And he says, I'm going to kill you and feed you to the birds. And they was like, well, if that's what you want, I'm going to what I'm going to do to you. I'm going to kill you and feed you to the birds, but I want you to hear this. And David makes a great statement. He says, I want you to hear this. I want to feed you today so that you know that our Lord saves not with the sword and the spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you me, he will give you to me in my hands. And what I want you to hear is a lot of times when we face these big trials, we think it's about the fight. And the truth is, this story is about faith, not about fighting. We love to have a good fight sometimes. And we think it's my job to fight for God. Somebody who does something wrong, i got to fight for God. Can, what kind of God needs us to fight for him? You know? I don't, I'm not saying we can't defend God, we can't stand strong in our faith, but I don't have to win a battle for God. God's already won. He's already provided. And Goliath had every implement available to him to kill David, to kill everybody there one-on-one. -on -one. But David took with him just a few small stones and a sling and a staff. And it reminds me of this. I need to ask myself sometimes, where am I fighting things with the weapons of men instead of the weapons of God? Where am I trying to use the weapons of men instead of the weapons of God? Because you know what? I can defeat some people in my life with the weapons of this world, but it's just going to cause other problems in my life. It's going to cause angerness, anger, bitterness, hatred. We don't win with the same tactics. God doesn't say with the sword and the spear. And then how are you approaching your problems with the power of God instead? With what he's giving you? We, we tend to think we want a better javelin, a bigger sword to face his enemy. And God is saying, here are some slings and a stone. He's basically telling us we don't need anything more than him. Which causes me to ask this question, where am I actually walking in faith? Faith is not something I hold on to. It's something we live out of. Faith isn't a shelter, it's a vehicle to move us forward. We don't hide behind our faith, we wear it like a badge. Faith causes us to believe things that are unbelievable, do things that are unpredictable, and experience things that are unexplainable, and that's what David did right here. And the key idea is this, we've got to stop battling and actually start believing. Believe, living out of that belief. You know the story, David walks out and Goliath comes at him in one swing. He throws a stone, he throws it, hits him, knocks him out, kills him, walks over, takes his own sword, chops his head off. I mean, quite a day, right? You're like, wow. And you're like, this has got to be made up. There's actually been a Discovery Channel thing done on this where somebody actually did this to not a real giant, they created a giant, but like, and like somebody who's trained with a sling can do this. And this is the last thing I want you to see here. This is actually a story about dependence, not deliverance. It's learning to depend on God, not just thinking, God, take me out of this. A lot of times we think the way we experience God is when we are removed from our struggles, when pain is taken away, when hardship is no longer there. That's not the story here. It's not that God took Goliath out of the way. He actually used David and his dependence upon himself upon God to go out and experience deliverance because he depended on God. A lot of times we think we have this transactional relationship with God. That for God to first do something for me, I have to do something for him. So David had all this goodwill stored up with God so that when he went out to face Goliath, he had the tool and 
God made the stone magically go the right thing and hit Goliath in the head. But if he had been disobedient that morning, it probably wouldn't have happened that way. He'd be, you know, been crushed. This is not what deliverance is. It's not a transactional relationship with God. It's learning that we cannot ever overextend the grace of God. We can never overextend it. What I want you to see this morning is what we are called to do is to live completely dependent upon God. Walking into the battle with whatever appears, even when we appear to be unmanned, ill-equipped, but the truth is this, we come into this battle with the full strength of the Lord on our side. In all reality, David was so good with that sling, he'd been using it for so long. If anybody was actually a tactician, they knew David would win that fight the minute he stepped on there. Because literally what happened was this. David showed up to a sword fight with a gun. That sling can come out so fast, it's like a 35 millimeter shot straight to the forehead. David walked into there so tough, he'd been so dependent, so trained, physically and everything, and he'd so dependent on one guy, he brought a gun. God gave him a bigger tool than anybody ever expected. God's given you things that you don't think are worth anything. All of a sudden, you're going to get a situation, it's going to be the exact right thing for the right time. And that's what God did with David. My question for you today is this. Where are you fighting without God in your life? Change your perspective. Start to see Him as the one. Where are you actually fighting God in your life? Putting expectations on Him or thinking you're not good enough for this. And then finally, where are you trying to fight for God in your life instead of operating out of faith and letting Him win the battles? This is all built on dependence. And dependence as a starting point, and it's called surrender. And the way that you and I will eventually win the battles against these giants in our life is by surrendering to the Lordship of Christ. Entering that training program that David did, and allowing him to develop a dependence upon us, upon him, over our entire life. Would you pray with me? God, it is so easy to be overwhelmed. So easy. Every day, new things seem to pile on. Maybe it's not a giant. But all the things added together become a giant problem. We get overwhelmed, fear and dismay in our hearts. Try to do things ourselves, use our own tools, use the tools of the world to fight against God. We want to set that all aside today. God, in this ordinary day right now, as we maybe are tending sheep or bringing supplies or doing whatever is normal in our life, would you allow us to start to see it as a training ground? A way that you're developing dependence, trust, faithfulness in our lives. So when the moment comes to fight the giant, to deal with the issue, We'll use the tools that you've already poured into us. God, help us to surrender to you and all that we do. And to live like David. With an uncompromising perspective. Knowing that you are bigger than anything we'll ever face. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.